But you say he's good. Who's good? Who's good? I say all the, you say time, all the, all the, amen. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, there you go. All right, all right. Well, it's, a work, it's been a while. We were a little rusty. I understand. It's cold out. All right. Uh, we're glad you're here this morning. I got to start with a very, very serious question. Okay, this is, this is paramount for the rest of the message. I need to know who in this room is the tallest person. All right. Now, Blair's not here. He just got back from Nicaragua. That was my default. All right. So is anybody, Josiah, how tall are you? You're, that doesn't help me. I don't know. Six five. All right. Six five. Is anybody here? You ever notice how tall people, they never say like, like I'm five nine, but I, I'm not actually five nine. I'm five nine and a quarter. Right. Because we're going to take every little, little fraction of an inch we can take. And Jos- you know, nobody's like, I'm seven foot and one sixteenth. Right. They're just like, so he's, he's just six five. Right. So he's six five. Anybody here six five or taller? We've got any six six in the house. Any six six. All right. Congratulations, Josiah. You've taken the mantle as the tallest person in this room. He got his dad sick in Nicaragua just for this moment, this one shining moment. Uh, now, it's easy. It's easy. If we had someone else and there was this dispute, someone else goes, no, 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 no. Josiah is not 6'5". I don't believe that. Now, that would be an easy thing to figure out, right? We get the ruler or we get the, you know, get the tape measure out and we can just measure him. Who's the tallest? Go back to back. I mean, it's a measurable, a measurable thing. And how many of you have uh, door frames like this in your house, right? Where you have little markings and here's my birthday and here's my kid. Oh, remember when they were two and they were that tall? Another three, another 33 and they're five, nine and a quarter, right? And so you just kind of measure that. And now with the Pinterest world, okay, now we're rocking things like this. Okay, we're big time now. Like all these different charts and drawings. And then we have these little cute little sayings like, you are loved beyond measure. Get it? Because it's the word measure. All right. right. It's early. We're here. All right. Now, or you can little DIY. Now we have the slider to measure them. All these little fancy things that we can do thanks to the internet. And and I love, we love marking people. See, up and down, measure the progress. I still remember the depressing day my little brother grew past me, or he was taller than me. And I'm still working through these short people issues. I just, apparently this is therapy for this morning. I, I thank you for that. Last year, when I went on my my diet, kind of went paleo, losing some weight for my hips. You step on the scale and you measure your progress. And that helped me be able to see day after day the pounds that were, that were being shed. And so we, we, it helps us to have ways to measure progress in our lives. But what we want to look at today is, is as a believer, as a follower of Jesus, how do we measure the progress? How do we, how do we measure and, and, and able to look and say, man, have I changed? Have I grown as, as a believer? We, we've been walking through this message series called The, the Purpose of the Church. It's, it's called uh, The Church Complete in Christ. And we've been using this vision, uh, this picture frame to help us kind of remember where we're at. And we said at the beginning, the first week, the mission of, of the church, I believe this is a biblical, this is right from the Bible. Paul said, I make it my aim to present everyone complete in Christ. That every single person on the planet would know Jesus as their Lord and Savior and become mature, complete in him, looking just like him. And then we said, well, what kind of a place do we need to be? What's the vision that God has for us to be able to meet this goal? And we said that our vision for Peninsula Grace is that we are a gospel-centered community. A community that gathers around the good news of who Jesus is. And then our task is to go and reproduce disciples of Jesus. And that dis- those disciples are to become complete in Christ. And then the last two weeks we said, well, how do we do that? How do we do that? How do we become a people, like our logo shows, gathered around the cross, reproducing disciples? And we showed this method that we want to use. Again, biblical principles. Engage, equip, and empower. At first we go into our community, into the ends of the earth, engage the lost. That to seek and save the lost. That was Jesus' mission. That should be our mission. 
And then when the lost are found, we equip the found, training them in God's word, sending them out in the power of the Holy Spirit to go and engage and equip and empower more to engage and equip and empower. And that is the reproductive disciple cycle. But then today we want to look and go, okay, so if our goal is to be a fully mature disciple of Jesus, how do we know if we're making progress? Like, how do we know? Have you ever thought about it? Like, how do we measure that? How, how do we know if, if we're moving more toward uh, Christ-like discipleship than, than we were yesterday or, or a year ago? How do we know if we're equipping people to become disciples? What's our doorpost equivalent to measure the growth of a disciple of Jesus? Well, there's a principle that says you count what you care about. You count what you care about. So if you want to lose weight, you count what? You count pounds, right? If you're saving up to go on a vacation, you're going to count money. Okay, this last weekend, today, oh, today's the last day of the Olympics. It's so sad. It's the closing ceremonies, and if you've been watching, this last week, Keegan Randall, Anchorage his own, winning the gold medal, cross-country skiing, first medal in women's Alaska history. That's right, Rana. Amen. Now, how do we know who the fastest skier is? It's easy. You measure the time, right? We, we count the time. If we want to know how fertile of a church we've been, we just count all the babies that have been born this last year. And another one this last week, Kensley Grace Delifka came into this world celebrating with Jeff and Delifka, Jeff and Lindsay Delifka. Uh, not surprising, not here this morning. They're at home with Kensley, but we're celebrating with them. But too often, as a church, when we try to count what we care about and measure church growth, we use what I call the church ABCs. And what we count is attendance, buildings, and cash. And so we look at these three markers and we go, is our church growing? Well, how many people are coming to our services or our programs? And how much money do we have? And, and are we having to build new buildings? Do we get a new fancy auditorium? And then that, that's kind of how we measure if we're doing well or not doing well as a church. But here's the reality. We could pack this place out, 12 services a weekend. We'd have billions of dollars need to build a whole like, Peninsula Grace mega complex and just take over Sylvania. But we could still totally miss the heart of what God wants us to be as a church. You see, Justin Bieber can get attendance and cash and pack out buildings. So I'm here to tell you, Bieber is not our litmus test for growth as a Christian, right? I hope not. I hope not. Growth is not how often you come to church. Now hear me, church attendance is important. But walking into a hospital... While it doesn't make you well, that's still a, a wise place to go if you're hurting or sick, right? So coming to church, gathering with a community of believers is, 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 is a biblical concept. But there are a lot of churches who got a lot of people coming in their buildings on Sunday mornings, but are not healthy, growing disciples of Jesus. So how do we measure growth? Well, we have to look at the goal. What's the end game? That's how we're going to know if, if we're moving in that direction, where are we trying to go? Well, Jesus said, go and make disciples, not just converts, not just church attenders. We said to make disciples, followers of me. And we said that maturity, the goal of that disciple is to be complete in Christ. A fully mature disciple who looks just like Jesus, who's doing the things Jesus does, who's saying the things Jesus says. So if that's our goal, if that is where we're heading, if that's what we're supposed to be, the disciples of Jesus... And we best start with Jesus' words for what a disciple of Jesus looks like, right? That's the best 
source we can cite. So we go to the Gospels, and we see what Jesus' words were. If you want to be my disciple, this is what a disciple looks like. So we walk through these. He says, a disciple is willing to deny themselves, to take up their cross every single day, and to follow me. He said, that's what a disciple is. He said, a disciple is someone who puts me before everything else in their lives, before their own selves, before their families, before their possessions, before everything. He said, a disciple is someone who's committed to my teaching. Go and teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. He said, a disciple is someone who's committed to world evangelism. Look up, the harvest is great. Go and seek the sake of the lost. That's my heart. That ought to be your heart. He says, a disciple is someone who loves others in the same way that I loved you. He says, a disciple is someone who abides in me, someone who's obedient to me, someone who bears fruit, someone who glorifies God, who has joy and loves the church. That's a lot to unpack. And we don't have time to walk through all of that this morning. But I want to boil it down to what I think is kind of the essence of what Jesus is saying here. And his initial call to his disciples. This is what he said as he's calling these fishermen and tax collectors out to follow him. He said in Matthew 4, 19, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Three essential growth elements here that we're going to see in this expression. First of all, he said, follow me. This, this, is, this, is, a, this is a matter of the head. To know, to believe and trust that Jesus is Lord and Savior. Step one, follow me. Then, he says, I will make you. What does that imply? There's something that you're not that you need to be. There's going to be a change. I'm going to make you something that you're not right now. This is a heart thing. This is a character thing. And finally, he says, I'm going to make you fishers of men. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he says, this is going to be your hands and feet. You're going to go and do what the Holy Spirit says to go and do and say what the Holy Spirit says. And we're on mission making fishers of men who can make fishers of men as we make these disciples. So, it's a good pastor. Got a nice little alliteration here for you. This is our, our growth, our measures for growth as a believer. Number one, believing God's word. Number two, becoming like Jesus. And number three, being led by the Holy Spirit. Not only is it an alliteration, I got all three parts of the Trinity. Right? I nailed it. Next week we'll talk about humility. Right? That's a... So, so let's, let's kind of un unpack these. Okay? First one, believing God's word. And we'll talk about the first two this week and then being led by the Spirit next week. First of all, believing God's word. This is, this is the head. Okay? Our question here, a growth question that we ask, is am I believing God's word? Am I believing God's word? You go back to the Garden of Eden. Okay? The serpent is there with Eve. And the ultimate question since the beginning of humanity is to believe or not to believe that. That is the question. What, what was Satan's strategy with Eve when he comes to her? He goes, did God really say you can't eat of any tree? Are you sure about that? He said, he said does God, did God say you won't die? You won't die. You don't want, he, just, he just doesn't want you to become like him. What's Satan doing when he comes to Eve? He's saying, you can't trust God. He's a liar. God's holding out on you. He does not have your best interest in mind. And when, when the serpent got Eve to doubt God, she got God, he got Eve to doubt God's word. And because she didn't trust him, she didn't obey him, and Adam and Eve, they sin against God, and sin enters into the world. So ask yourself, who in your life do you trust? Who do you not trust? Because we will not follow someone, we will not obey someone if we don't trust them, right? And you've been teaching your kids this since they were young. If you're at the park and some creepy dude pulls up in a van and offers Snickers and balloons, 
right? You kick him in the shins, you run for the hills, and you yell, stranger danger, right? You don't trust him, why? Because you, you don't follow him, why? Because you don't trust him. And man, in our lives, we know people, we, we have been hurt deeply, and we have hurt deeply. When there is no trust, we will not comply, we will not follow, we will not obey. Now we know in a broken world, there is no human that fully deserves our trust. Everybody will fail everybody else at some point. There's grace, there's healing, and there's forgiveness in Jesus. So the ultimate question for us, when it comes to our relationship with God, I call it the Aladdin question. Do you trust me? Do you trust me? Do you trust me? <laughs> over and over and over. I should probably get that off the screen. All right. The, the perfect, mature, complete believer fully trusts God and therefore fully trusts every word of God. You want the perfect example? There's only been one, and that was God himself when he came to this earth in the form of Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus, and, and this obedience, this distrust was most emphatically displayed on the cross, right? When he willingly suffered and died, was disconnected from his father. Why have you forsaken me? Why, God, where are you? He cries out. But he willingly, what did he say in the garden? He said, not my will, but yours be done. Whatever you ask for me to do, I'll do it. And in his last breath, according to Luke, he says the words, Father, good Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. I entrust my spirit. I give it to you. Why? Because he goes, I know this isn't the end. You've made a promise that you're going to raise me back up to life. And in Hebrews, it says the reason he was willing to endure the cross is because he knew of the joy that was going to be his afterwards. And he goes, but you've told me that you're going to raise me up from the, de the dead. So I trust you. I will go anywhere. I will go to hell and back because I trust my father and his word that he's promised to me. So you think about, look at this, look at this picture. Thank you, Google. So here's this little kid. I don't know how he got here, but it's hilarious, right? This little kid clinging to the edge of this diving board for his life, right? And what's his dad doing? He, he's coming over to him and going, hey, let go. I'll catch you. And the kid's going, hey, I'm like two. I don't know how to swim, right? Don't worry, I got you. I promise. I give you my word that if you let go and trust me, I will catch you. You will not drown. There's salvation at the bottom of this pool. To believe or not to believe. If we fully trusted God, we would fully trust his word. When he says jump, we let go of the diving board. But sin came into the world. And Hebrews 14, or excuse me, Romans 14, says everything that does not come from faith is sin. At the bottom of every sin is a failure to believe God's word because it's a failure to believe who God is, who he says he is everything in our lives as, what do we call ourselves? Believers, right? Those who believe, and everything in our lives as believers is wrapped around this concept of faith, of believing God's word. Look at this good news, Romans 1, this good news, the gospel tells us how God makes us right in his sight, how we're restored to a relationship with him. This is accomplished from start to finish by faith. And the scriptures say it's through faith that a righteous person has life. Our entire life, the way that we live with God, from the beginning to the end, is marked by faith. But we always have to ask the question, faith in what? Because you don't just have faith. He's a man of faith. Like, that doesn't mean anything. Faith in what? We have to have an object. We all have faith. The question is, what do we put our faith in? 
And according to Romans 10, it tells us the only acceptable object for our faith. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. That we hear what God tells us and we believe it. Specifically, faith in his word is who? It's faith in the word that was made flesh. The ultimate object of our faith is what God's spoken word says about the living word. That we believe what God said about who Christ is. Where our faith belongs. So let's, how do we measure this? Okay, a couple of growth questions we need to ask ourselves. First of all, do I know it? Do I know it? Now let's, let's be honest. Do I read God's word on a regular basis? And not just read it, not just like scan it 10 minutes in the morning, I, I checked my U version off for today and I kind of moving on, but do I study it? Do I meditate on it? Do I sit on it? Am I hiding it in my heart? Am I memorizing it? Am I, am I, am I seeking God to how to apply this in my life? And then remember we said we're here to reproduce disciples, so not just do I know it for myself, but am I able to teach this to someone else who can then go and teach it to someone else? You remember Awanas, approved workmen are not ashamed comes from the Bible, 2 Timothy. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Do we know it? But then not just do we know it, but can we fight with it? Can we fight with it? Galatians, Paul says, or excuse me, Ephesians, he says the, the only offensive weapon as is in the armor of God is the sword of the Spirit. And the sword of the Spirit, he says, is the word of God. This is an offensive weapon. Now, it's not against flesh and blood, right? That's not our enemy. This is not the Crusades. We're not running the Crusades back. The enemy is who? It's, it's the lies of the flesh and the Satan. That's what we're fighting against. And do we know how to wield this sword well? So let me ask you, when it comes to, like, to sin in our lives, sometimes we have this vague notion of why certain things are wrong. Like, we know, man, you know, you take something like pornography. Man, I know the, the guilt and the shame that's associated with it. But can I take you to the word of God and show where the where specific principles for why this is unhealthy, why this is sinful, why this is harmful? What God says about healthy sexuality? When I'm looking in the scripture, do I know what the Bible says about abortion and the sanctity of life? Do I know what it says about alcohol? Is it that I should abstain from all alcohol? Is there a healthy way to, to handle that in, in moderation? What about the anxiety I'm feeling in my life? Like, what do I do with, with worry? What is a, what's a healthy way to approach finances or, or my marriage? Do we know what the Bible says, the specific promises and truths and warnings of the scripture that address those things? Because the truth is how we're going to fight the lies. And then can we defend? Can we defend? Not just go on the offensive, but also the defensive. Can you defend what you believe, knowing God's word? We're called to. First Peter 3, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, and we can't underline that enough. Gentleness and respect in the words that we say. But if someone comes to you and says, man, why is it? Why do you believe all this stuff? Why do you think Jesus is the only way? It's so narrow-minded of you. Or ask the tough questions. Why would a good God allow suffering in this world? What kind of a God is that? Can we take him to the passages in Job that talk about suffering and God's sovereignty? We don't have answers for every question. But we know, do we know how the Bible, the truth, addresses these questions? Can we defend what we believe? Now, some of this might freak you out, and honestly, it's meant to a little bit, right? This points us to the, to the job of the church. We said last week, the leaders equip the body to minister. And if we don't know 
the marching orders, if we don't understand the truth of God, we can't go out and do what he called us to do. Now, I do want to kind of run back. Last week, I, was, I, I kind of apologized. I said, like, we're not doing that well here. And, and I didn't mean, we have a lot of good things going on here at the church. Wednesday nights, the women's Bible study, the men's Bible study, home groups, family Sunday school. There are a lot of ways that we are teaching God's word well. But the call is to go deeper and to train deeper and deeper and do better at equipping our people through the training of his word. We've got to let the word of God saturate our minds. Romans 12 says to renew our minds, to think differently. And the word of God is going to be that. So do I know it? And the second one will we'll kind of answer the first one. Do I show it? Do I know it? Do I show it? How do we know if we're believing God's word? How do we know? Well, the Hebrew concept of belief, they call it by life. Okay, the, the way we know if we're believing is by the way that we're living. You know the passage in James 2. Faith by itself, if it does not have works, it's dead. It's useless. It means nothing. You see, this is not just like mental assent, where we're just kind of gathering some facts. Yep, I've heard those. I know those. I can quote those. This involves repentance, a changing of one's mind. I used to think this, and now I think this. And when, when we change the way we think and believe, it will necessarily result in the way that we live. You read through Hebrews 11. By faith, Abraham did this. By faith, Noah did that. And if, we're, if we believe, if we have faith, we will be faithful. A step forward, trusting God. It's faith in action. If I tell my dad, I believe you'll catch me when I jump, but then I don't jump into his arms, do I believe him? If I believe he'll catch me, I'll jump cannot be followers of Jesus. We don't know this book. We don't believe this book. That leads us to the second measure of a disciple's growth, the results of believing this word. Becoming like Jesus. The second question for measuring growth is, is, is a heart question. It's a character question. Am I becoming like Jesus? He said, I will make you. There's something I want to make you that you're not right now. This is, again, not just head knowledge. Jesus wants to change the core and character of who we are. As we believe in him, we will begin to become like him. And again, we go back to the origins. We go back to Genesis. And there's two things that we're going to see that we're called to bear as humans, as believers. The first one is to bear his image. What did God say about, about Adam and Eve in the garden? He said about them, and he didn't say this about any other of his creation. He said, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created. So men and women, human beings, have been created in the image of God. So what's that mean? And what in the world is the purpose of an image? Well, if haters are going to hate, ballers are going to ball, images are going to image, right? If you don't know that cultural reference, you're a better person than me, all right? So here's our purpose. The purpose of an image is to image. It's to image something. It's to reflect the glory of the thing that you're imaging. So you take, for example, we've used this before, Les Nelson, if you've, Les Anderson, excuse me, if you've seen this statue over at Soldotna uh, Visitor Center, just over here on the, by the bridge, you'll see this statue of Les Anderson, uh, attended church here at Peninsula Grace for years. He caught the largest king salmon ever on a pole, 97 pounds, 4 ounces, hallelujah, right? Caught with that thing for hours, 1985. And so this statue, what's the purpose of this statue? It's not to just show how awesome the statue is. It's to remind us of the greatness of Les Anderson. How great was your King Salmon, right? You're an amazing King Salmon catcher. And, and to, to glorify him in that sense, to remember him and remember how great that feat was for people to see it and to be glad. 
And so us, we, we, are, we are little images of God here on earth, icons, images of him bearing his likeness. And when he created us, he said, I want you to go fill the earth, subdue it, go and rule and reign the same way that I rule and reign over creation and then live like me, work like me, be like me. And as you do that, the little images we're running around here on earth, we are glorifying the reality of the God that we're imaging. And when we do what he's called us to do and say what he's called us to say, we give him glory because we're reflecting his image. But then we know what happens, right? In Genesis 3, Adam and Eve, when they failed to believe God's word, they marred that image. So imagine some little punks come to Soldatna Visitor Center late at night and they do this to the Les Anderson statue, right? Graffiti it all up. Now, is that still an image of Les Anderson and his family? It is, but it's a marred image, right? It no longer accurately reflects his glory. It's been marred. And in the same way, we still reflect God's image, but now we have been graffitied with sin, and you and I no longer accurately reflect the glory of God. And because we are no longer like him, we cannot have a relationship with him in our sinful state. And that's why Jesus came, to restore us to the original image, the likeness of God. And that's why, you know Romans 8, he caused everything to work together for good. Well, what's the end game? What's the good that everything's working toward? He says in Romans 8, 29, God knew his people in advance, and he chose them to become what? Like his son. Once again, accurately reflecting the glory of God as we look like Jesus, because Jesus perfectly reflects the glory of God as God. Now, we're in the process of this now. No one on this side of glory is going to perfectly look like Jesus, but we're moving in that direction. And one day, in our glorified state, when we look Jesus in the eyeballs, can you imagine what that day is going to be like? And 1 John says, when this happens, this is going to be this amazing moment. He says, dear friends, we already are God's children, right? This is the already not yet. We are complete in Christ, but we're becoming what we are declared to be. But he has not yet shown us what we will be like when Christ appears. But we do know that we will be like him, for we will see him as he really is. When we look at Jesus in the eyeballs, we're going to look exactly like him. We're going to reflect his glory. It's going to be this amazing moment that I can't wait for. Complete in Christ. We are bearing his image. And what we see here on earth is that means we're going to be bearing his fruit. In John 15, Jesus shows us what that means and what that looks like. He says, verse 8, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Remember, the point of everything, our chief end is to glorify God, to give God glory. And he says, to do this and to prove that you're following me, you'll bear much fruit. Now, what in the world does that mean to bear fruit? It doesn't mean we're popping out oranges and pineapples out of our bodies, right? If that's happened to you, please go see your local physician, right? What does this mean to bear fruit? Well, in Ephesians 5, he tells us what this fruit that we are called to bear looks like. And he says, it's like love. It's love. And in the Greek grammar here, the word love, think of it like an orange. And love is like an orange. And then those little individual pieces that make up the orange are joy and peace and patience and kindness, it fleshes out what love is. And the fruit that we're called to bear is love. And Jesus, once again, was the perfect example of this. Next verse, verse 9, he says, as the Father has loved me, so the perfect love that the Father had for Jesus, he says, so have I loved you, so abide in my love. He says, the perfect love of God is fully seen in me. I love the exact same way that God loves, reflecting his glory. And now he commands his followers, verse 12, this is, here's my command, as your master, you are my disciples, 
that you love one another as I've loved you. So our call, bearing fruit, is to love other people and God the same way that Jesus loved us in the same way that God loved Jesus. And he says, well, what does this look like ultimately? Verse 13, greater love is no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. To be just like Jesus, to be willing to do what Jesus did for us, to lay down his life for us. And as we begin to bear this fruit of love, it's the shift of my eyeballs off of myself onto other people and onto my creator God. And I start living for the sake of others, for God's glory and for their good, and willing to die for others. So, an important distinction that Jesus makes here, though. Because what we might do is you might read this and go, wow, okay, that's a tall order, but I'll do my best. I'll do my best to imitate Jesus. However, we're going to fail if we try to imitate. For example, you know, going back to basketball, I try to stay off sports, but you know, this is where we're at. This is where I live. If I wanted to be like LeBron James, and I do, right? <laughs> it's not going to work. I could practice my little rear off, right? I, mean, I could pump iron. I can put those little shoes on that make you walk on your calves, make your calves huge. I can get the best trainers in the world, the best basketball players, minds, coaches to train me, try to get my body into shape, try to get my basketball mind going. I can do everything in the world. But there's no amount of self-effort that will make me become LeBron James. I don't know why I love putting my face on other people's bodies, but I, just, I think it's hilarious, so I continue to do it, all right? And you just have to suffer for it. No amount of self-effort will make this little five nine and a quarter white boy to look like the 6'8 black man that LeBron James is with calves the size of grapefruits, right? Can't do that. Won't happen. The only way that I could ever truly be like LeBron James would be to be born again as LeBron James, right? Father in heaven. That would be amazing. And in the same way, becoming like Jesus, it does, it's not just reading the Gospels and then doing our best to imitate him. All the imitation in the world will never make us like Jesus. He said this himself in John 15. Look at this. Abide in me. Trust, remain, be connected to me. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you're the branches. Where does the branch get its source? Ability to bear fruit, the vine. If it's not connected to the vine, it does not produce fruit. Whoever abides in me and I in him, it, he it is that bears much fruit. And here he underlines it, for apart from me, you can do nothing. Disciples of Jesus don't just become like Jesus, like a cheap, knockoff, like great value brand Jesus, right? You ever eaten imitation fruit? It looks good, shiny, squeaky. Do you taste it? It's disgusting, right? It's fake fruit. It's not real fruit. And we in Alaska, we don't really know real fruit, right? It takes like 12 days to get it shipped up here, and it's disgusting and way more expensive than regular fruit down there. But you ever been to Georgia, and you've bitten into a pre peach, and you know real fruit? Oh, mama. It's the real deal. And Jesus says, I don't just want little imitations, cheap imitations me. I want the real deal. And so that's what happens. We get born again. Christ in us, you guys. Galatians 2, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. The old nature's gone, crucified to the cross, no more power. It's Christ who lives in me, the real deal. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith, believing him, the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself 
for me. This is not imitation. This is transformation. And he's actually going to begin to change us from the inside out, the core of our DNA. How does this work? By knowing Jesus and relationship with Jesus, beholding who Jesus is. Second Corinthians, like this cute little kitten. We all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, the likeness of Jesus, from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit, his work in me. And as I behold him, and I believe who I'm beholding, inside out, I start to become like Jesus. And you're going to start to see the fruit of the Holy Spirit, love in and through me. And that's why what is so, the, the most central thing to our growth as a disciple is not performance, it's relationship with the person of Jesus. Jeff Jernigan, a biblical scholar, he, he summed it up way better than I ever could. I just want to look at his quote here. He says, the process of maturing in Christ, it's not a program measured by performance, but rather an ongoing journey measured by progress. And he kind of unpacks what he means here. God isn't interested in how many devotionals we have had, how many Bible studies we have completed, how much time we've spent in prayer, or how often we have witnessed. If, now all those things are good. We just talked about the necessity of knowing and reading, studying God's word. But he says, if... Those disciplines are performed from a sense of duty, void of love. So we just check the boxes. I went to church this week. Check. Did 18 devotionals this morning. Check, 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 check. If we don't have love, what did Paul say? Man, I could give all of my money to the poor. I could prophesy my little head off. I could surrender my body to the flames. But if I do not have love, it means absolutely nothing. That can only come from one source. He says he is far more concerned with the progress of our relationship with the living Savior. So as we behold that Savior, we'll actually become like that Savior. But let him who boasts, boast of this. Not how often you go to church, not how much you've read your version this week, but that he understands and knows me. That's the end game. Growing in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's the true measure of maturity in Christ. We behold him and believe him. We'll start to become like him. And what will happen is we'll start to bear this kind of fruit in our relationships with others and with our Father. Now, a little reminder here. You and I, we have jobs, but one of them is not to be the fruit police, okay? So our job is not to run around and go, you're not bearing fruit, you're not bearing fruit, that fruit looks terrible, right? It's not our job. That's not our place. We are not our neighbor's judge and jury. I was talking about this earlier this week with Deanna Hawley, and she shared a quote with me from Billy Graham. And of course, this week we honor Billy Graham and what God was in and through Billy Graham. And 99 years, and now he's home with the Lord, and we can't wait to, to be with him someday and, and celebrating with Jesus with him. But he had this quote, and I, and I thought it was so pertinent for this week. He said, it is the Holy Spirit's job to convict. It's God's job to judge. It's my job to love. That's what we've been called to as believers, to abide in Christ who will bear fruit of love. Now, hear me on this. We have a responsibility as believers to hold one another accountable and to be real with each other, to take the mask off with each other. And if you see a brother or sister erring, to point them not toward yourself and not say, I'm going to tell you. Because listen, we can, we can deceive each other. Like I can fake you out with some fake fruit, but I can't fake the father out with fake fruit. So we point each other back toward the word, back to the truth, back to the Holy Spirit, who is the one who is going to convict. 
And one day, we will all stand before our maker. He's the judge. I'm not your judge. No one else is your judge. And he will determine what fruit was real and abiding in Jesus and what was fake fruit done in self-efficacy. Our job is to love. Because listen, growth is messy and it's difficult. And that's why we use the terms here. We measure. We use believing God's word. Not like, check, I believed God's word once. It's a process. It's a journey. Believing God's word. To measure it. Are we believing God's word? And becoming like Jesus. Because hear me, there are going to be seasons of desert. Where we're going through the ringer. And it doesn't feel like we've grown at all. And there's going to be these seasons of rapid growth. Where it's like drinking out of a fire hose. It's not just going to be every single day we grow the exact same amount. That's, that's not the path of grace. Growth in, in Jesus. But ask yourself this morning, am I believing God's word more than I did yesterday? Or, or more than I did last week? Or, or more than I did a year ago? Or 20 years ago? Take the long view on this. Am I moving in the direction where I'm learning more of God's word and putting my trust in what he's saying to me? Am I becoming more like Jesus today than in the past? Am I loving more? Am I seeing more patience and more joy in my life? These are the ways that we can measure our growth as a disciple. Now, how do we do this? How do we grow as believers? How do we bear this fruit and become like Jesus? Next week, we're going to look at what it means to be led by the Holy Spirit, because it is the power of the Holy Spirit in us that's going to change us and make us more like Jesus as we believe his word. And we'll walk into that next week. Would you pray with me? Father God, I, I pray for us as a body that those of us, that we'd be convicted into this by your Holy Spirit, to know your word, that you would give us, you would give us the heart to want to study this thing, to want to know it front and back. These are the words of life. This is where we get to know you and know Jesus. So give us a heart to read it, to study it, to, to know it together, to gather around Jesus expressed in your word. And then God, let it change our hearts as we behold Jesus, that we would become like Jesus. Father, we, we are not yet what you've called us to be, but by the power of your Holy Spirit, you can change our hearts, and you are, with Christ in us, making us more like you. May we become a people who love like Jesus, not attempting in our self-effort, but allowing you to change our hearts. May your desires be our desires. May we be a church that loves this world more than ourselves, that loves our neighbor, our brother and sister more than ourselves. And we lay down our lives in the way that Jesus came to this earth and laid down his life for us. So that we might have his life in and through us. <laughs> Father, we thank you for Jesus. We just want to worship him today as we close out to believe your word and to become like him. And it's in his beautiful name we pray. Amen.